you know, you never really realize how bad a button can look until you make one yourself. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> it's kind of like a game, really. It's like, oh, what do all these buttons do? Yeah. And then once you start realizing, oh, I can make my own buttons and I can make them do things, it's just the most fun thing. Hey there, Johnny from Soundtrack.academy here, and in this episode, I'm excited to feature a really interesting guest, Ben Osterhaus. If you recognize the name, that's likely because you've used one of his sample libraries. For a while, they were the best kept secret of the composer world until someone let the cat out of the bag and they became a favorite for so many people. I just had to get Ben on the show to talk about his approach to creating libraries, and I was not disappointed. We dove deep into the many considerations when it comes to developing sample libraries. So here's what you'll learn in this episode. Number one, how the pursuit of learning can lead you down all kinds of unknown paths. Number two, learning scripting by starting with ideas and then finding solutions. And number three, how boring technical exercises can actually inspire creativity. You'll hear all that and much more, including the benefits of being a solo developer and whether or not composers should create sample libraries for financial gain in just a moment. But first, if you're not already subscribed to the Soundtrack.academy newsletter, make sure you get signed up right now. Visit Soundtrack.academy slash newsletter. I'll send you copies of both my eBooks, The Media Scoring Guide, where I detail the equipment, skills, and process of film scoring, and Landing Film Scoring Projects, where, surprise, surprise, I teach you how to actually find projects to work on. Plus, you'll be notified of all future podcast episodes and all my other new film scoring resources. That link again is soundtrack.academy slash newsletter. And finally, I want to give a huge shout out to you. Thank you for tuning in and being involved in the Soundtrack.academy journey. I'm really thrilled to have you here. If you haven't done so yet, please leave me a review on whatever podcast app you're using. I love reading your comments and we'll give you a shout out in the next episode too. Okay, here's Ben. Hi Ben, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me. So can we begin in your words with who you are and what you do? Um, I am a composer, cellist, and uh, more recently, a sample developer. Great. So um, a bit of a different guest this week for my listeners. As you know, we normally feature, I guess, more full-time composers, whereas uh, your background is perhaps more so in performance and then particularly more recently in sample development as well. Yeah. So how did you how did you first become involved in music? Take us right back. Well, if we go all the way back, um, I mean, I, I started playing piano when I was seven and cello when I was eight. And, um, and my parents are both both musicians. My mom is a violinist, my dad bassist. And um, so I just, that's just sort of when you grow up in a family like that, you just, <laughs> you kind of have to pick an instrument, you know? So um, when I started getting really interested in music was when I started composing things myself when I was uh, 16. And and that was kind of like, oh, hey, all of these skills that I've been developing are, can actually be super useful for <laughs> For this, and it kind of goes further. When I was, when I started composing, it was, it was all kind of tied into like this fact that I had these skills. Like, hey, I can play cello decently and piano. And when you start to, like, record yourself and edit things together and come up with with ideas that way, it's 
can really be quite an exciting thing. So yeah, that's that's kind of how I originally got interested in music. So at what point did you start taking music kind of really seriously? You mentioned you started composing when you were, were 16 and you realized sort of the skills you'd learned fed into that. Is that kind of when you started taking music a bit more seriously or really started to think that you might make a, a, a life out of it? Yeah, definitely. I, I remember the day that I kind of started realizing how much potential there was. I stayed up till like two o'clock at night putting together this thing where I'd layer together all these different bits of my playing and sounds and things. And it was just, I was just having the best time ever. And <laughs> it was just mind blowing. I was, I remember thinking that that night, like, I'm going to be doing this for a really long time, like maybe the rest of my life, like, which was kind of, I don't know, it was just really crazy. It's kind of like an epiphany. You just kind of realized this is, this is it. This is life now. Yeah. I just remember thinking like, man, if I could, if I had like a studio where I could just play with stuff <laughs> all the time, that would just be the coolest thing, the best thing ever. So yeah. Nice. Once you realized that you wanted to do that and that's what you wanted to do, did you have you been going at life with with a with a plan and a real direction and a real focus, or are you sort of taking it and seeing what comes? Because you know, when you look at your portfolio and and what you're doing, you, you know, you are still a, a cellist performer and you're working in various ensembles and you have the sample libraries and developments, things like that. So I guess what's the plan is the question. Yeah, kind of partway through high school, I was thinking, you know, I I like playing. Oh, I like playing piano. I like playing in youth orchestra, doing chamber music, choir. Um, I was taking voice lessons, organ lessons, composition lessons. Yeah, all these, all these different things. And, you know, and, you know, playing around in FL studio a lot and just doing all these different things. And I thought, man, this is really cool. But yeah, of course, okay, what am I actually going to do with this? And the thought was, um, if I was if I was a composer, I could still kind of be in this world without having to be like a soloist or something like that. Because I mean, I wasn't that serious about either instrument, any instruments that I was playing. But you know, I was serious about all these different things enough that maybe if I could kind of still stay in that world of that magical world of of being a musician. As a composer, that that could be that could be good, I guess. <laughs> I didn't really know. <laughs> so I started out majoring in composition at university, and I don't know. Everybody was just like, "Man, you're so good at cello. Why aren't you majoring in cello?" So I was like, "Okay, sure." <laughs> and also, it just seemed a little bit more practical to kind of focus on that because I was getting gigs and people asking me to play for things, and not so much for composition. And also I was thinking, you know, if, if there's any time to just, you know, work your butt off and get really skilled as an instrumentalist, you know, now is the time while you're in school and then later maybe use those skills to help you out more. Because, yeah, th this is something that's a bit of like advice that I found is just the more that I learn other music and develop skill playing other people's music, the more it helps out my composition. If I just am in a vacuum trying to come up with ideas, you know, nothing ever, nothing ever comes. Everything comes back to all of the stuff that I've had to learn 
you you'd sound you sound like you are just genuinely quite interested in in learning all those different skills. I mean, you mentioned you know about FL Studios, like music production and the performance, and yeah, the yeah, cello and uh, composition and the, the whole suite. And it's just it is it just comes from a genuine place of interest that you're interested in all those things. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, before you you were asking what what my plan had been, <laughs> yeah, because it sort it did sort of change actually. Because I mentioned I, I was, was going to major in composition yeah. in order to stay in the music world. But um turned out um, studying instrumental stuff and getting better at that was, was a good idea. Um, along with that, the other thought was having lots of different skills would be useful for, say, like a university, like a smaller university where they needed somebody to teach a lot of different things and... I'd have all these different, like I wouldn't be too much of a jack of all trades, but not too much of a specialist. So that, yeah, that was kind of the plan and that's led me in various directions, but. There are, I, I guess from the more people I've spoken to, there are um, two kind of schools of thought. One is the very much focus on one thing because you need to give it your all in order to make any progress on it. Yeah. But then the other school of thought is to diversify and, and work in lots of different areas, doing lots of different things, and then see what comes from that as well. That's always the question, you know, to diversify or not to, because there's two poles where either when, hard to tell. You also mentioned that what you'd learned growing up in terms of your instrumental lessons and things, when you started composing, you realized that all of that stuff fed into your composing. Often, you know, many composers compose via piano, and that's that, that translation is, is obvious. But how much have you found that that playing the cello and learning cello has informed your composing as well? I think it's really helped with melodic things because I don't really sing very much. The cello is kind of my voice, my melodic voice, and then the piano, you can do whatever you need to do harmonically. And then you mentioned that learning other composers' work as well has helped, has influenced your your composing or what you're creating um, a lot more at the time anyway, when you were studying composing more. Does that also apply from, you know, from playing in the orchestras and chamber bands and things that you were, you were playing in? The stuff there, has that, do you feel like that influenced you as a composer? Yeah, definitely. I think especially like more recently playing in, in cello sections where if you play a tiny bit out of tune, you can see people around you kind of leaning into to see, oh, is it me? <laughs> you know, <laughs> when you when you play in a section like that and you really can feel how everybody in the section is listening to everybody else and we're all blending and to get everything to sound right, it's just on the the edge of a knife to, to for everything to to fit you know having that kind of experience of what the inside of string section can sound like i think really informs how i think about um layering sounds together like in a daw ah, that's really interesting yeah you can sort of see it from almost you're creating kind of from the inside a little bit more rather than from from the outside if that makes sense yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, so anyway, let's let's talk about your um, sample libraries. So mm-hmm. for any listeners that haven't already heard of or used your libraries, how would you describe them? Mm, let's see. <laughs> um, uh, I've gone so many different directions with them, but um, well, l- let me just talk about the ones that have I've done more recently. The idea is I want to take like the type of sounds that I really like to make the kind of niche things that are kind of peculiar to like the way that I like to make sounds with my instrument and 
general and package those into something where you just open it up and magical stuff happens when you <laughs> start playing. That's kind of one, one way of, of looking at it. And I know that initially people seem to kind of stumble across <laughs> your libraries and then realize that they'd found something a little bit special, but people kept it pretty quiet for a while. And then all of a sudden people started talking about them online and the original people were like, oh no, someone, everyone's found my secret. And it's sort of like they, they kind of blew up these sample libraries, you know? Everyone's talking about them. Uh, I noticed there's even a, a Ben Osterhaus appreciation thread on, <laughs> on VI control as well. Oh, wow. Oh, I haven't seen that yet. <laughs> you've, got a, you've got an entire fan club. <laughs> I'll have to check out that. <laughs> um, how did the creation of the sample libraries initially come about? Was it just a pet project that you wanted to do for fun? Was it something to solve a problem you were having yourself? Or had you actually aspired to become a sample library developer? Is that a route that you, sort of, you, you set your targets on? Yeah, that's a good question. There was, it was kind of an interesting process. Like I mentioned before, I've, I've really liked learning about how to work in DAWs and parting and stuff. And I think I was just playing around with some of the samplers, like DirectWave, NFL Studio, and, and some other things. And so I, I kind of had that in the back of my mind, like, man, samplers are really cool, actually. <laughs> and then the other thing that got me kind of going or kind of interested is, um, well, I was minoring in composition during my DMA, and just through lessons, we were kind of talking about, well, what do you want to do with composition? And, and I was saying, I'm kind of interested in media composition, like for film and games and stuff like that. And, but I'm not quite sure what I would do to, to get into that realm. And, and he suggested somebody that I could contact who's, who does that kind of stuff. And I, um, I talked to that that person and had a really good conversation about like all the different things that I might need to to do and kind of learn about. And one of the things that they mentioned was, you know, you should probably start learning about sample libraries. And, and I use a lot of East West. If you get the composer cloud, then you can kind of get started working that way. And mm -hmm. So I got the Composer Cloud. This was, I think this was in 2017. And yeah, it was kind of mind-blowing because up till then, I really hadn't used like super high quality virtual instruments before. It was just kind of whatever was the stock stuff that was available. Sure. And I didn't even realize how much stuff was out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, and I, I now know that, holy cow, there's just an insane amount of stuff out there. Anyways, yeah, just um, playing around with the East-West stuff was, was kind of kind of neat, kind of opened my eyes to stuff that's out there. And then I started seeing YouTube channels about, about this stuff. Like I saw the Spitfire channel, mm -hmm. saw, you know, Christian Henson's channel and um, the sample cast with Ruben, Ruben Cornell. Yeah, just a lot of things out there where it's like, okay, this is there's actually a whole world of people that are doing more classical style composition using virtual instruments. So there was one video in particular that was just kind of um, inspiring to me was um, Christian Hansen did a thing where he 
think it's called like my personal amplified cello library. And he had recorded all of these slides and expressive things from cellists and layered them together and map them to the keyboard. And then he just like plays a couple of chords and all of this crazy stuff starts happening. <laughs> and it's like really expressive and and really amazing sounding. And it doesn't sound like it doesn't sound like a sample library. It doesn't sound like fake at all. And I saw that and was like, I could, I mean, I could do that. <laughs> I could. And so like the next day I just started recording slides and glisses and then mapping them to notes of the keyboard and then playing them and all these interesting accidents would start happening. And I was realizing, you know, this is really, you can almost think of this as a way of editing, a fancy way of editing rather than making an instrument, you know? And then, I mean, on that kind of front, on the editing front, I know one of the things that um, people absolutely love about your libraries is the scripting, they call it, how it, you know, how it, how it plays and how it works. How did you actually go about learning all of that side of side of stuff? Because I mean, yeah, figuring out how to drag samples into a in, into a sample is one thing, but then the programming of it and the, the visual interface and all that kind of stuff. Where did you learn those skills? Ah, uh, yeah, just a, a lot of experimentation, and also, um, I mean, I always think that playing around with MIDI controllers is a lot of fun, mm-hmm. and so getting things to react in interesting ways to your input from a MIDI controller. I'm just kind of fascinated by that. And I think it's really fun to play around with. And so I came up with these ideas like, oh, wouldn't that be cool if you could do this? And then, oh, but darn, I don't know enough scripting to to figure out how to do that. Well, you know, if if there's a project you really want to do, then, you know, you'll figure out how to do it eventually. So that's, (laughs) that's kind of how I slowly, slowly started to learn the scripting side of things. Okay, so you're kind of going at it from, I guess, the, the the thoughts come first, the ideas come first, then you figure out how to solve those problems afterwards, as opposed to yeah. finding a new scripting technique and, and, and giving it a go. Yeah, definitely. But I mean, honestly, I mean, I, I don't I don't dabble much or at all in, in, in sampling and things. But, you know, if, 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 I, if tomorrow I said I, I want to make a sample library for my next project and I want to do some really complicated scripting, where, where would I go to figure out how to do that? Well, the VI control forum, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, every time I Google stuff, it usually just takes me there and sure. there, there's answers. I mean, I'm not sure I'd recommend it, recommend learning scripting to somebody if they just if they just have like one idea that they want to do. I mean, it's it's a whole thing. It's it gets so complicated. You don't you don't really realize how complicated it can get until you start having to actually make something happen. <laughs> Of course, I suppose, I suppose I, I didn't really follow my own advice because I kind of just did have like, oh, I just want to figure out this one thing. And then, you know, a year later, it's like, wait a second, I've been doing this like pretty much every day. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. I don't know, it kind of it sucks you in, but um, maybe maybe it's not always good to get sucked in, but I, I've kind of ended up getting sucked in myself anyway. So <laughs> how and how, how um creative do you find that the scripting process do you actually find like joy in the in the scripting of it or, or is it a frustrating technical exercise um yeah it's kind of frustrating yeah it is a bit <laughs> of a frustrating technical exercise to be honest but um but no i mean it is creative as well because once you have to know what's what goes into making things happen 
then you start to realize how many different ways you could diverge off and make different things happen. Like certain possibilities present themselves in the process of making something that wouldn't have occurred to you otherwise. And have those things kind of inspired other libraries or other complete new roads for you to go down as well? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Like, for instance, learning how to make an arpeggiator gave me ideas for, well, it's hard to go into exact exact examples of like which instrument influenced other things, but a lot of times I'm surprised at how I had to learn how to do something with one instrument and then it helps me on the next project in ways that I wouldn't have expected. Okay, have you got any examples? Um, yeah, okay. So an example is on the viola da gamba that I put out last summer. I wanted to use it as an ostinato creator. So it would patch together all of these different rhythms in a way that would be natural. Mm-hmm and um, flow nicely. And in order to get the patterns to um, sync up with each other in the right sort of way, you need to distinguish between whether or not, if you add a new note, whether it starts partway through the previous pattern, wherever you were, or whether it just starts right back at the beginning for every single new note that you play. And that's just something that I hadn't even considered. But once I had to do that, it made me realize it's kind of tricky how, yeah, it's tricky figuring out what do you do when a user plays a note and then they play another note that adds to it. Ugh. It gets kind of complicated to yeah, talk like it, about. Like, <laughs> add, like adding another note halfway through the original sequence of the first note. Right. Sure. Yeah, yeah, because you could have it do something different if the note gets added halfway through versus if it gets added right away. You know, that's yeah. that's a specific example. So. so yeah, these tiny little kind of things that pop up that you don't think are going to be a problem early on, and then when it presents itself, it then becomes a creative decision as to whether or not you want it to work that way or whether you want it to work a different exactly. way. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's that's definitely it. Wow, so just micro decisions all the time then. Well, yeah, and isn't composing all about lots of little decisions? Yeah, well, I mean, that was that was one of, was was one of the questions I had as well. Is um, do you do you find you get the same kind of feeling of creative expression when you're creating a library as you do when you're composing or performing? Yeah, I'd, I say so in a slightly different sort of way, but yeah, there there is some similarity there. Apart from when you start doing the technical bit. <laughs> I mean, or when you're like, how am I going to edit all of these? things so that it's not ridiculously tedious. And so you you end up coming up with this really clever script in Reaper that will automatically name everything for you. And you spend like hours making the script in order to name 20 samples. And then you realize, you know, <laughs> I probably could have just gone in and named every one of those. <laughs> yeah. But then are you able to reuse the script at least? Yeah. Great. Great. I'm, I'm so much of that mindset. Yeah. Yeah. You know where I'm coming from. Um, yeah. Also, I was, I was going to say sometimes though, it is just plain tedious. And for those times 
I just think about the some of the gigs that I've done and think, well, okay, if I could spend, you know, three hours in a rehearsal playing that that one piece that was really boring, I can definitely spend three hours <laughs> editing all these samples and not even that long. I mean, usually it doesn't, I mean, if, if you're quick, you can, and there's something tedious you want to get done, you know, you just set a timer and just get it done. So it's uh, isn't it Packerbell's canon, like the nightmare of every, every challenge. Yeah, yeah. It? <laughs> so can you tell me a bit about your, your process when it comes to creating sample libraries then? So do you have a, a kind of routine that you go through? Do you have a, a clear starting point where you find inspiration, where you come up with ideas? And then how do you then bring those ideas to fruition? What's the kind of, what's the process of actually getting it all put together? It's, um, well, like I mentioned before, one thing from uh, something from a previous library will give me an idea for a new one. Mm-hmm. So that's one way of generating ideas. The other thing about the process is that it's very iterative. I can, at any time, I can just scrap everything, go back to the beginning and say, okay, let's let's try something different. And I feel like that's a really good advantage to have. Well, I don't know how like the large the library companies do things, but I'm guessing they probably have things pretty regimented in terms of, okay, we're hiring people to record at this time and we need to be, we need to know what they need to record, you know, because it's a much bigger structure. But if you're just on your own and you're doing everything, then it gives you a ton of flexibility to just play around with lots of stuff. And if it doesn't work, then then that's okay. So I'll just kind of have an idea like this might be fun and then just mess around with it a little bit and record. I'll record something and then layer it together and be like, so this clip represents if you play a note here and then this little recording is going to be the note change sample that happens when you play a new note. And so I'll kind of prototype things just by putting putting samples on the grid in, in my DAW. And then once once I've made something that I think is going to sound really good once it's mapped to the keyboard, then I'll, I'll go in and I'll start actually making things happen. So you kind of, you, you sort of, you sort of create, um, yeah, like a prototype in your, in your door to check it's going to mm-hmm. work. And then do you go, then do you sort of do a more thoroughly planned out recording session and go back to record more parts or by then have you already captured all the, the parts that you need? Yeah, I'll go back and re-record everything all over again because you know because things have to be very consistent and yeah. it's pretty tricky when you're just experimenting to, to get what you need so you tr- you make sure you have like one recording session where you get everything that you that you need for that for that like single library yeah and how do you go about planning for those sessions and particularly like obviously get planning what to record but then also the management of all those recordings afterwards the sample management as well yeah, that's that's another thing that you would think would be very tedious, but once you get into it, it's you can be kind of creative with how you organize things. So yeah, I mean after after recording everything, a lot of times I won't worry about trying to record things at specific times. I'll just you know record a bunch of takes and then worry about all the editing later. You know, make sure that it lines up with the click track, of course, but just you know figure out the editing later and. Yeah, so I'll just go through, slice everything, 
get it to be the same length. And you run into all kinds of problems like, well, I wanted the range of this instrument to be from here to here and the range of that instrument to be from here to here. But now we have different amounts of samples for each of them. So the script that I wrote that's going to name all of them isn't going to work. <laughs> so, I, so I have to like tailor make it for each different articulation. And then, and then you start to realize, oh, darn, I really should have been more consistent in like the ranges that I recorded each articulation at. So those are... Those, those are some of the things that you're dealing with in the sample management after you, after you record. But um, yeah, and and then also figuring out how do I split this apart? Do I have everything be in one session or do I split it into multiple project files? And yeah, yeah, in Reaper, they have all of these extra things that I was like, oh, I would never use that. And then a year later, I'm like, okay, what what else can I do with regions and <laughs> markers and and stuff yeah. like that because it's really really useful actually so so a lot of times i'll just have everything be in one project and just organize things really carefully and leave notes for myself so that i can go back and know exactly where everything is and then oh and then the huge lifesaver which i don't know if other daws have this but in reaper you can do find there's a find thing they can search for through names of of clips, clips like within within the timeline. Yeah, within the timeline, which is, you know, when you're writing music, it's like, why would you need to do that for a three minute <laughs> song? But when you're dealing with a project where you've got thousands and thousands of clips spanning over, you know, hours, it's absolutely essential to have search functions. You said thousands and thousands of clips spanning hours there, and I think a lot of people probably don't realize how much sometimes goes into these sample libraries. And I think that kind of uh, sums it up nicely there. Yeah, definitely. That kind of feeds nicely into another question that I had for you, which is, do you think developing sample libraries is a good idea for composers to help either diversify their portfolios or diversify their skill set? And I mean both creatively, but maybe also financially as well. Or do you think in order to create sample libraries well and to do it properly and to get any kind of real income if you're talking about the financial side of things? Do you think it takes too much energy and too much focus to run that alongside all the other stuff when it comes to composing? Hmm. Well, I've certainly found that to be the case for myself where I haven't been able to do both as much as I would like. I mean, in order to make sample libraries that I think are really, really good, it's taken just pretty much all of my time. And this past year, not that much time has gone to pursuing composition opportunities because of that. So yeah, I'm not sure I would, I would recommend um, trying to do both. But again, like I said before, I know it sort of sucks you in. So if, if you, if you have a really good idea, just go ahead and do it and maybe it'll pull you away from composition like it has for me, but sure. I don't know, maybe it won't. <laughs> so um, I, I listened to your uh, episode with Olajide Harris, who was talking about how it's doing sampling does kind of tend to pull you away from composition. And, and he was suggesting you should have an exit strategy <laughs> if you don't want to do that um, forever. And I heard that and was thinking, 
I've been doing this for a year. I bet I'm going to be tired of this. If I was doing this for like 10 years, I would be very tired of it by then. So yeah, maybe I should come up with an exit strategy. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not tired of it at all yet, but we'll see. Sure. I mean, doing it all yourself as well. I mean, you literally take the product from, from start to finish, don't you? So that in in and of itself must become tedious after a while. Like you said, there's all the little things that you kind of, you must wish you could just outsource. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually talking about doing all of the things for me, that's, that's kind of what I enjoy about it is okay. you have to do all these different things. You have to write music with it. That was kind of the idea with it was, Hey, if I could do this, it would force me to have to write music with the libraries because mm-hmm. you got to show how it works. <laughs> um, it would force me to have to make videos because I think making videos is fun. It would force me to learn to script, which I've always kind of wanted to learn, but it's just, you know, it's never really happened. But now I actually have a reason that I need to learn those things. Um, it's forced me to try and learn a little bit of about graphic design because I also think that's very interesting. Um, mm-hmm. Although actually... I have somebody who does a lot of the the graphics for me. So that that's the one part of things that that I don't really do. I I mean I'd like to do more of that. It's just you know, you never really realize how bad a button can look until you make <laughs> one yourself. <laughs> that's so true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's really fun making the the controls. Like yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna mention before. You know, I mess around with balls a lot, and it's kind of like a game, really. It's like, oh, what do all these buttons do? Yeah. And then once you start realizing, oh, I can make my own buttons, and I can make <laughs> them do things. It's just the most fun thing. I don't know. Maybe other people. Maybe it's just me that finds that really interesting, but and other people would be like, so what? You can make buttons, but for me, it's like. <laughs> I can make things that do things. <laughs> I just thought that was so fun. Yeah. Or like you just, okay, I'll just copy and paste this line a bunch of times. And now I have like 20 buttons. <laughs> <laughs> as many buttons as you want. <laughs> yeah. As many buttons as you want. And then. You mean you mentioned about an exit strategy. What, what are your next plans? Are you using this as a stepping stone to move into the developer world? Are you moving, I don't know, moving back into performance, focusing more into composition? What what are your plans? Yeah, that reminds me of something I was going to mention about when I was getting into making instruments. Part of the plan was that by making the instruments, it would be a good way to network and get my name out there so that if people needed a composer or a cellist for a project, they would they would know my name. I mean, I didn't think that many people were going to be into instruments. So I thought that they would just be a, a way to get my name out there, kind of like a calling <laughs> card. You know, if sure. you want to see, if you want to see what I can do, what, I, how I can record things, then try out my instrument. And then you could like hire me to, to do stuff for your, your project. Um, but it turns out <laughs> just by themselves, people were really, really interested in, in the instruments. So I guess I didn't really need to to go that far. But um, if in the future I was thinking, you know, if you're 
name is out there and you can collaborate with people on different projects, like maybe for films or games or just personal projects, that could be something to continue diversifying into. As you know, I always end the show by asking for one final piece of advice. Before we move on to that, where's the best place that people can find you or reach out to you online? Well, my website, uh, ben.osterhouse.org. And yep, great. I'll link to all of those from the from the episode show notes as well. And then, yeah, what would be your one piece of advice for somebody? Obviously, I normally ask about com- composing, but um, if someone was interested in creating their own sample library or getting into sample library development, what would be your one piece of advice for them? Just play around, make some instruments, and share them with people and see what kind of reaction you get from the friends that you share it with. Great. Well, thank you so much once again for being on the show, Ben. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been really enlightening. I know I've learned a lot. Like I say, it's a, it's a, it's a whole new field for me as well. Yeah, well, thanks again for having me. No worries. Take care. I hope you learned as much as I did from that episode. Be sure to check out Ben's libraries if you haven't already. I'll include links in the episode show notes. As always, let me know what you thought of the episode. Tag me on social media at SoundtrackAcad or just send me an email. Once again, make sure you sign up to the Soundtrack.Academy newsletter by visiting Soundtrack.Academy newsletter. And that's all for this time. Have a great day.